This is They Create Worlds, episode 79, The Six Children of EA. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Just like the Thunderdome, six will enter. Three will leave victorious at the greatest influential things of the six initial titles of EA. Or maybe we'll just like them all. I'm not quite sure. I don't think that's how the Thunderdome works. Oh. I don't think six enter. That's not in the rules. Pray I do not change the rules further. Well, now we're just completely mixing our science fiction metaphors. I have no idea where we are anymore. Well, I think if you were around in the time of EA when it first launched, you may have been a fan of Star Wars. You may have also been a fan of Mad Max. As a result, I'm mixing it all. All those classic 70s and 80s references. Just be glad I don't bring out Crawl. Oh, dear. There was a coin, going to be a coin-operated video game based on Kroll, but that's, that's a story for another time, because we're not talking about Williams Electronics and arcade video games today. No, we are talking about the six titles that launched Electronic Arts in the year 1983. We have, of course, talked about this a little bit before. We did do an episode on the founding of Electronic Arts, and it's kind of hard to discuss the founding of a company without also discussing the games that they launched. Yeah, we discussed this at length, I would have thought, with our early history of EA episode and in our EA the Teenage Year. Between the two of them, we should have certainly covered all of this. Well, we covered the fact that all of these products have existed, but what we're going to do today is take just a little more of a deep dive, kind of describe these six games in not super detail, and that's not what this podcast is about, but go into a little more detail on each of these games kind of explain how this fits into how the computer game industry was evolving at the time and just how these games came to EA and how they did once EA released them into the wild. Alrighty. So we have six challengers, adventures, contestants. Sure, why not? All right. Contestant number one is... So when EA was first formed, May 1982, They needed software artists. That's what they called these programmers and game designers that they were bringing into their sphere, software artists. The goal was to scour the country for the best programmers and designers that they could find, though, in truth, at the start of the company, Trip Hawkins already had some ideas of some of the people he wanted. Now, the very, very first person to sign with EA, as far as I know, was actually, I say person, but it was actually a duo. It was the company Freefall Associates. And despite the fact that Trip Hawkins had some ideas of who he wanted and he was going to have his producers all go out and scour the country, this pairing ended up happening almost completely through coincidence and accident. We talked a little bit about Freefall, of course, when we did our Birth of EA episode. But the Associates in this case were John Freeman and Anne Westfall. I can't remember if they were quite married at this point, but if, if they weren't married yet, they were together and they, and they did marry. 
John Freeman was the co-founder of the company Automated Simulations, which later changed its name to Epics. He co-founded that company with Jim Connolly. Jim Connolly was a programmer. John Freeman was not. John Freeman had done a lot of work in writing articles on games and on game design, pen and paper stuff, board games and that kind of thing. And so he knew a fair amount about game design. Jim Connolly knew programming. So when Jim Connolly decided he wanted to do a game, the logical thing to do was to turn to John Freeman to help him put together a rule set for that game. So they had this partnership for a few years. And then in late 1981, John Freeman met Ann Westfall, another programmer, of one of the rare women programmers of these early days, at a computer show. Their booth, I think, was right next to Epix's. They hit it off. They started seeing each other. I think she may have briefly joined the automated simulation slash Epix crowd. But around this time period, John Freeman was getting upset with his co-founder. There are a few different stories about this. John Freeman himself doesn't go into it too much other than to say that he felt that the company was getting too political and there was too much worrying about who got what and not enough focus on just making product. Jim, whom I've interviewed, says he doesn't really know why John Freeman was mad, but he says John Freeman was definitely mad about something. Susan Lee Marrow, who became one of the early Electronic Arts producers, but who was also at Automated Simulations before that, says that uh, she believes it's because when they were divvying up the stock in the company that Jim got more than John, and John was unhappy. Could be that, it could be something else. I mean, it's one of these things that we may never know the full story on. But there was unhappiness, and so John Freeman left Automated Simulations with Ann Westfall, and they went and formed Freefall Associates together. They knew they wanted to make games together. They knew they weren't going to be a publisher. But they weren't looking at electronic arts. They weren't really looking for a publisher at all yet. But as a favor to a friend, they placed an ad advertising their services in a computer magazine. When that issue came out, Trip Hawkins happened to see it. So they got a phone call, you know, this is Trip Hawkins from Electronic Arts, and they thought it was a scam because, A, they had really only kind of half remembered that they had placed that ad in the first place because it wasn't really their prime motivation at the time, and, B, their copy of the issue actually had that page missing, so they hadn't realized that their ad had actually run in the publication. It was just their copy was screwed up. It wasn't the whole print run that was screwed up, just, you know, their copy. So once they got over the whole, yeah, right, sure, yeah, you want to hire us kind of thing, and f- everyone figured out that everyone else was for real, they got together and, and they were very intrigued. They were intrigued because of this software artist approach. They were intrigued at the idea that their contribution would be valued in this way and that EA would be giving them a lot of freedom on how to proceed. So they pitched two games and Tripp said, well, go ahead and work on both. And so that's how the two of them got signed to the company. Those two games that they pitched, both were released, though one of them was not one of the launch titles. One of them was a murder mystery game, Murder on the Zinderneuf. The other was a very unusual action strategy hybrid game that, of course, I know you know very well by the name of Archon. I like that game. <laughs> I really wish there was a modern rendition of it. Yeah, it's a game that you could see being on phones or something you know i mean at the very least or um even local co-op play especially with the sort of retro kicks that a lot of the game industry is in currently yeah put it on the switch there you go (laughs) 
there were a few different inspirations for this game. It kind of grew out of seeing a few different things. There was this great medieval chess set that John Freeman had been admiring in a, in a store or whatever, you know, with these elaborate pieces that were done up as men-at-arms and real knights on horses and all of that kind of thing. I mean, we've all seen chess sets like that. And he had also seen some human chess games that uh, the Society for Creative Anachronism would put on, where you have chess players, uh, real people being chess players in a life-size chess set, and then because it's SCA and they like fake sword fighting, when two pieces intersected with each other, there'd be a combat between the two individuals to see who would win. And, of course, there was Star Wars, uh, the famous holographic chess scene in the first Star Wars movie. So that kind of gave the idea that this kind of strategy game where people fight each other kind of makes sense. But he didn't want to do chess. I mean, there's a game called Battle Chess by Interplay that came out years later. And Battle Chess is really just chess. I mean, and you can't even have a combat come out differently. I mean, when the pieces collide, they go through this little battle animation, but all the turns are resolved by the rules of chess. It's not like the pawn can fend off the the knight if the knight comes charging in or something like that. I mean, so there's that part of it, but they, they didn't want to just do chess. The idea was to merge the idea of action games and strategy games because there were games that were action games and there were games that were strategy games. And uh, John Freeman and Ann Westfall didn't see why you couldn't have a game that was both an action and a strategy game, which in the 1981 time frame, 82 time frame that we're talking about, was a fairly novel idea. You kind of had two traditions of computer gaming at that period of time that were starting to appear on the emerging microcomputer scene. You had games that were just derived from what was going on in the arcade, which, of course, was a very action-oriented space. And then you had the games that were being shared around on time-sharing systems run by mainframes or on mini-computers, which were strategic-based rather than action-based because when you're on a time-sharing system that's maybe sharing computer resources between 50 people, you don't have a lot of memory or a lot of RAM being devoted to any individual user, and you can't really do the kinds of games that update your display rapidly. And in fact, a lot of these time-sharing systems didn't even have CRT displays. They had teletypes. So you had a tradition coming out of there, and that's where games like Adventure came from, that are focused entirely on the problem-solving, entirely on the strategy, entirely on turn-based play, and just essentially no action. And John Freeman's aware of both of these traditions, and is basically like, let's, let's bring them together. And that's, that's what Archon is. They decided to do a chess-like board, in the sense that it has squares, light squares, dark squares, etc., as a way of making the game familiar and approachable. They wanted people to feel like when they started this game that there was some familiar element to it. You have your armies arranged on either side and you have squares. It's chess. But they also very consciously didn't want it to be a standard chessboard size, that 8 by 8 size, and they didn't want the squares to be in a chess-like configuration because they wanted people to know at the same time, and this is something... John Freeman said in interviews, I'm not just being some hoity-toity critic here trying to define authorial intent. They wanted, at the same time, for a person playing the game for the first time to realize that this is not chess. So they, they kind of wanted this cognitive dissonance where, I know what this is, but 
it's not quite what I think it is. What's really interesting about it is you have squares that are always black or always white. Mm. And these provide bonuses to light or dark based on who's on it. So if you fight a dark creature on a dark square and you're light, then the dark has more life than the light one and is more likely to win. That plays into the strategy. Yes. In the middle of the board, there are less of these, always the same color tiles. And they're shifting tiles where it will shift between neutral, black, and white, where it's possible that you could be evenly matched or one side or the other controls it. Furthermore, it's really interesting in that the goal is not to checkmate the king or take out the king. The goal is to control the most power points. That's right. And each side starts off controlling about three of them. And then there's some in the middle that you need to control and you need to control all of them in order to win. That's another aspect to this uh, dynamic here. Absolutely. The reason for all of that, the dynamism of the board and the combat and, and the shifting of control is because they wanted to create a game that was strategic, but they wanted to create a game that was clearly a computer game and was taking advantage of the fact that a computer game can have things happen in real time, that things can happen quickly. So they wanted to have that action component. And the action component is that whenever two pieces occupy a square, then you've got an action mini game that you play in order to resolve things. But they didn't want the action to ultimately trump the strategic element. Because if you're just moving around, moving around, moving around, but then whoever has the better trigger finger is the one that wins anyway, no matter all of this maneuvering around the board, then what was the point? And so that's why they wanted to have these light and these dark squares, and you have the forces of light and the forces of darkness, and have the forces of dark be strong on the dark squares and the forces of light be light strong on the light squares. Because then, even though the action is important, even though skill at the action sequence is still important to win, it's not everything. The player that very carefully places his pieces strategically to take advantage of bonuses is even if they're not the best hand-eye coordinated player, are still going to have a chance to win the game. That's the strategic element blending nicely with the action element. So really, Archon is a very interesting game with a lot of mechanics and dynamics to it and is an excellent start for EA to have as one of its launch titles. Absolutely. And it really epitomizes something that Trip Hawkins really felt important in the positioning of the company. Now, I don't know if this is something that he had from the beginning as an idea or something that emerged as he and his marketing people got a look at all the launch titles they ended up having. And and when I say I don't know that, I mean, that's a question I'm sure Trip Hawkins would answer, but sometimes it's a chicken and egg thing. A person may not, even though they say, oh yeah, I have this idea all the time, Sometimes they don't remember that. I'm not talking about lying. I'm just saying that after a certain period of time, it kind of all blends together and you forget whether the chicken or the egg came first. But there was this concept uh, in early EA, simple, hot, deep. We did talk about that when we talked about our founding of EA. The idea is that a game should be easy to pick up, basic rules, easy to figure out the way it works. It should have really good play value and really good action 
but then there should be a lot of depth to the mechanics and to the strategy and to really master the game should take a little more time. Simple, hot, deep. And Archon really epitomizes that because it has that chessboard. It has that familiar-ish setup, even though it's something different. And you can kind of figure out pretty quickly light and dark squares and these units move like this and these units move like that. And here's my control points. But then to actually fully take advantage of that system, there's a lot more deep strategic thinking that goes on. And then it's got the action element that satisfies this kind of quote unquote hot requirement. So simple, hot, deep. Uh, Another good example of that, really, and an example of how EA was trying to, whether consciously or just by accident, go beyond what most games at the time were doing, is another one of our launch titles called Hard Hat Mac. Hard Hat Mac is not a game that probably most people remember today, though it was one of the games in this launch group that was more successful than some of the others. It was created by a couple of teenagers, Michael Abbott and Matthew Alexander. Unfortunately, I don't know much about them. They've kind of vanished in the sense they haven't done interviews. I know that they were from the San Diego area, and I know that they were teenagers when they were making the game. And I know that there is an important chain that they're a part of in terms of all of the early EA people and getting them involved in the company because they were friends with Eric Hammond, who did Dr. J versus Larry Bird one-on-one, and Eric Hammond was friends with Robin Antonick, who was the first programmer on John Madden football. There's a chain there of important people to EA's early history. Those others aren't launch titles. But I don't exactly know how this all comes together, unfortunately, and I don't know how they came to the attention of Electronic Arts or how Electronic Arts came to the attention of them. I mean, I don't know who approached whom. But they created this game called Hard Hat Mac. And in one sense, it's very much a Donkey Kong style platformer. There's no girl to rescue. There's no giant ape stand in at the top of the construction site. But there is a construction site, very much like the first level of the uh, Donkey Kong game. And it is a game of platforms. It is a game where you're negotiating various levels of girders. You have chains that allow you to climb up between levels. You have rotating platforms and moving platforms. You have springboards like uh, later Super Mario Brothers games have. You have a manner of conveyances to get around these platforms. And you have obstacles and traps you need to avoid, both environmental traps as well as a Vandal and an OSHA representative that will appear and move around the screen and try to catch you. So it has all of those action elements. It has those platforming elements. But it's not a get from point A to point B kind of platform game. It's not that kind of game at all. Each level has an objective of some sort that you have to complete. And completing that objective requires you to traverse uh, large parts of the screen. These are single screen levels and perform certain actions. Of course, we'll put this in the show notes so people can see what I'm talking about. Uh, But for instance, in, in the first level, you've got these rows of girders. And they're all solid, except there are gaps in a few of the girders. There's a jackhammer that's run amok around the screen that's moving around. And there are girders. uh, The missing girder pieces are scattered around the map. And so you have to collect these girder pieces, put them in the gaps, and then use the jackhammer, catch the jackhammer, and use the jackhammer to secure them in place. I don't know if it's real. It looks like a jackhammer. It may be something else. But the point is, it's got strategy to it because it's not... It's not like Donkey Kong where you're just moving from the bottom of the screen to the top of the screen. It's actually, okay, we've got these things we've got to do here, 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 and here. 
and how do I navigate the the map to make this work? So it's more of an action game than an archon. But it has that strategy element to it again. And so, once again, that's the kind of game that Trip Hawkins was interested in. I don't think he was particularly interested in pure arcade clone kind of titles, really. I mean, if you look at the early EA output, something like a hard hat Mac and uh, one of our other games that we're going to talk about in a little bit here, Axis Assassin, uh, the two launch titles are really the only titles that they did in their very early lineup that were more action-y. That set them apart a little bit, because this was a period when more and more the computer game companies, whether they be the Broderboons, the Sierras, etc., they were taking on more and more action games in their catalog. I mean, these were all companies that had started with stuff that was a little more cerebral, a little more turn-based. And as the arcade became bigger and bigger and bigger in the early 1980s, they started to move more and more and more towards mixing in action games. It's not like they left their roots. Sierra, of course, kept producing graphical adventure games, even as they were doing games like Jawbreaker and uh, a licensed port of Frogger that were more arcadey and action-y. Electronic Arts wasn't really interested in going in that direction, I think, fundamentally, but I think Trip Hawkins and, and the powers that be, the marketing people and the producers, understood that this is a part of the industry. This is something that is becoming bigger and bigger. So we should have some more action-y titles to balance out our catalog, but let's make sure that they have a little more depth, perhaps. So that's our second game, uh, Hard Hat Mac. So we talked in our Birth of EA episode about the fact that Trip Hawkins wanted to make EA a place where artists would be treated as rock stars and wanted EA to become a place that would become home to some of the best creative talent in the computer game business. And as we talked about in that episode, he knew that this approach required that he have somebody that would make an immediate splash, somebody that when he signed him, it would let the wider computer gaming community know that he was very serious. So effectively, he needed to hire someone who was already established and well-known but was enough of a free agent that he could go to them and say, here's some money, I want you to work for me. Exactly. And in the entire industry, there was probably no more perfect designer to kind of epitomize this way of thinking than Bill Budge. Uh, We, of course, talked about him in our uh, EA founding episode, but Bill Budge was already something of a legend in the industry. In these early days... Uh, We've talked about this a little bit before, but in these early days, the Apple II was really the prime game-playing computer before the uh, Atari 8-bit started really gaining steam and then the Commodore systems after that. It was the Apple II just by virtue of the fact that it did graphics. The TRS-80 didn't really do graphics very well. Yeah, at all. Yeah. I mean, you could put up basic graphics. It It was slightly better than ASCII characters, but it wasn't that great. (laughs) Really fancy ASCII character art. (laughs) Right. Whereas uh, on that Apple II, which we talked about in our Trinity episode, in our uh, computer technology episodes, we've we've done a little bit of this. It had this full color, 
bitmapped display. The trick of it was because it was bitmapped and there were no sprites, it was very, very tricky to make a game that had smooth, fast action while fully taking advantage of all the color capabilities of the system and all the graphical capabilities. Because as we discussed before in in one of our technology episodes, when you have sprites, you have little defined blocks of pixels that you can move independently of the rest of the display. So you don't have to redraw everything every time your sprites change position a little bit. When all you have is a bitmap capability, like the Apple II, when you have no hardware sprites, you can create them in software, of course, but then you're using up memory and all of that. When you don't have hardware sprites, when you have a bitmap display, when you move one tiny little element of the screen, you have to update the entire screen. There's no blocking it off into quadrants or whatever. For all I know, some particularly adept programmers found ways to do that. But natively speaking, you know, you're redrawing the entire screen every time. As a result, though, this meant that different really good programmers came up with different ways of overcoming these limitations. And people have talked about this before. When you have something like the Commodore 64, which has hardware sprites and hardware scrolling and which lends itself to particular types of games using a particular set of pre-created tools like the sprites, you get a certain sameness to the graphical style of these games. I mean, different people choose different sprite designs and use different colors and different fantastical elements, but, you know, you've seen one scrolling shooter game. In some ways, you've seen them all just in terms of basic design aesthetic. But on the Apple II, everyone kind of figured out their own way of getting around the limitations and doing fast action games in high-res mode. And because of that, you had more distinctive graphical styles. And because you had these kind of distinctive graphical styles and this kind of difficult programming job, there was a community that grew up around magazines like Soft Talk, which kind of became the fulcrum of the early Apple II software community. You had people that were subscribing to Soft Talk and and reading about the industry and learning about the industry who became followers of this and that programmer just because of the technique they were using to make these programs even work at all. And certainly Nasir Gabelli was a great example of that because he uh, at Sirius Software would actually put his name on their program by Nasir. And so people knew that it was a Nasir Gabelli game. And if you were kind of a techie type, which most Apple II users were at this time, this is before we have mainstream computer game acceptance, you kind of start following Nasir just because, oh my gosh, how does he do that? I want to learn how to do that. And Bill Budge was another one of these individuals. Bill Budge started tinkering with the Apple II very early on, and he started by just doing knockoffs of arcade games. The very first game he sold, I think, was a Pong knockoff. But the important thing is, is not just, uh, so he just made a Pong knockoff, so what? But the important thing is, is he made them work really well. I mean, in some cases, even better than original designers did. There's a breakout game built into the Apple II that Steve Wozniak did, and Bill Budge tweaked that game because the source code's there, tweaked it so that it played faster and better. It's like this is a guy that knew how to get this Apple II computer to display graphics really smoothly and do animation really, really smoothly. That's something that really stood out. And he went to work for Apple. 
You know, they were impressed by some of the stuff he was doing. In the meantime, he was selling his games through one of the very, very early computer game companies uh, called California Pacific, founded by Al Rimmers, a former IBM salesman. Basically, in this very early Wild West days, you had a guy like Al Rimmers who had sold computers and sold computer hardware around the, the state, around California and whatnot before, and so kind of knew how that worked, knew how distribution worked, knew how retail worked, had contacts. And then you had budding young game programmers like Bill Budge, who are making these great games, but maybe the most they do is show it to a few friends or go down to just their local computer store and put eight copies up on the shelf on in Ziploc baggies. And that's the only place in the entire country they're being sold. Or you send them in to magazines as type-in listings, which then, of course, it gets your game out there, but you don't get any money for it because it, the whole point is that anyone can then type it in. So there was a need for people that would bridge this gap, and Al Rimmers was one of the first people to do that with California Pacific. He saw some of Bill Budge's games and was really impressed, and they made a deal where Budge would make them and Rimmers would sell them, and they'd split the profits 50-50. That may not have been quite the beginning of California Pacific, I'm not sure, but Budge was at least one of the very early people to go through California Pacific. Now, he wasn't an employee. These early companies like California Pacific, they were, it wasn't the EA model because they were not providing any development support. Of course, we talked about EA. The big thing was is that they would provide a lot of support to developers. This was only taking finished product and putting it on store shelves. But unlike an online systems or uh, Broderbund, there was no talent in-house at California Pacific. It's just he would cast a wide net, find programs he thought would sell, make a royalty deal with the person that created it, and then he would give it greater distribution, national distribution. So Bill Budge did that for a bit while working at Apple. And then about 1981, 1980-81, a real pinball craze swept Apple. Just the company Apple. This was a period of time when pinball was actually in decline because of the ascendance of the video game in the arcades. But for whatever reason, around 1980, 1981, the Apple people, a lot of them, just got really hooked on pinball. So there were machines in the office and people were playing all the time. And that got budged to thinking, you know, it might be kind of fun to make a pinball simulation on the computer. And you see, Budge was really not so much into games as games. What he liked about games was the challenge of figuring out, how can I do that? He was interested in graphics. He wasn't really so much interested in games per se. Not that he didn't play some. I mean, he created a Pong clone because he saw a Pong on location, you know. So, I mean, it's not like he never played games, but it was the challenge. That's what really drew Bill Budge and probably still does. I mean, he still programs, works at Google now. He's one of those rare individuals that has kind of managed to remain relevant in technology as a programmer throughout <laughs> from the late 70s all the way to the present, which is very hard to do just because of how things change all the time. Yeah, it's very, very impressive that someone like that can survive from then. With a lot of these people, they fade to irrelevance to a degree. They sort of have their glory decade or so. And then they fade. They might occasionally put out something or put out something that is interesting or do a talking event or share their philosophy or try to create something new, but it falls flat. It's really interesting that someone can actually go from the dawn of the computer programming hobbyist age all the way up and still work with an extremely relevant company like Google. 
Exactly. And it really does speak to Bill Budge's programming genius. I mean, he was far and away one of the leading lights, along with Nasir, in this very early Apple scene. That's why he got this notoriety, and that's why, of course, Trip Hawkins knew who he was. So he decides to take on this challenge of let's create a pinball. Because, of course, you have to have really smooth graphics, smooth animations to make that work. And you have a lot of complex collision detection and physics that you have to calculate to make it believable. Because the idea is to make it feel as much like playing a real pinball as you can. Obviously, you don't have the tactile feedback of pulling the lever and hitting the buttons and having ding, 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 going off everywhere because the sound isn't that great on an Apple II. But you want the ball to move like a real pinball should move. And when it hits something, you want it to react in a way that if you were in a bar playing a pinball machine, you would expect that ball to react. Otherwise, pinball aficionado is going to say, well, this game's crap. It's terrible. (laughs) Nothing works the way it should. So that's really challenging. Even on a more advanced computer, that can be a challenging problem. But on an Apple II, that's an incredibly challenging problem. So he creates a game called Raster Blaster, which is just, it's, it's a single pinball table. That's all it is. But I mean, it's really well done. By this time, you know, he decides, you know, it's pretty clear that he is really good at what he does. I mean, he can figure that out. I mean, he's getting big royalty checks for the games. And he also did a graphics package that California Pacific released. Because like I said, computer graphics, that was the real thing he cared about. (laughs) It's like the games were just a gateway to figure out solving graphical design challenges. So he decides at this point that he can do better in terms of getting money back on this stuff. So he decides to establish his own company. Calls it Budgeco. I think his sister runs it with him. So it's a family company. And he sells Raster Blaster himself through Budgeco. And Raster Blaster does pretty well. So at that point, he's thinking, well, what's the next step? Uh, you know, I've made a pinball table. What's the next step from that? Well, some people might say multiple pinball tables. But, you know, not really, because <laughs> that's just more of the same, really. So he thinks, what about, because, you know, like I said, he's always more interested in the technical challenge or the implementation of ideas than he is in the finished product. So why not extend this in a way that he would find compelling, which is let's give someone a toolkit where they can create their own pinball machines. The other aspect of this, of course, is that he was at Apple in the early 80s. And at Apple in the early 80s, they were examining the Xerox Park facility. They were examining the GUI stuff going on there. And they were starting work on the Lisa computer, which had a graphical user interface. Point and click, drag and drop, et cetera, et cetera. So because he's been exposed to this, he's like, and the best way to do this would be to essentially have a GUI interface. because then you can construct a table right in front of your eyes. You have your elements, you have your bumpers, you have your flippers, you have your barriers, you have all your elements, and I can put them all off to the side. And then there aren't really mice in these days. Apple kind of has a mouse, but most people are using joysticks. So you're not using a mouse, but then you have your joystick and you can use your joystick to select an element, drag it over onto the play field in progress, and position it where you want. So he's doing a GUI construction kit before most people even knew what a GUI was, because this is before operating systems out in the wild were really GUI. This is when people were still presented with that blinking green cursor, and and then it was like, okay, go do something. 
This is the days of the logo programming language where the idea of drawing art on the screen was you had a turtle and then you typed in coordinates for your turtle to move to draw your lines. (laughs) So the idea of having predefined graphical elements you could mix and match through a drag and drop graphical user interface. I mean, that's revolutionary in the in this 1982, 1983 time period. Let alone having that really be on the Apple II. Oh, yeah, exactly. This this isn't a Lisa. This isn't a Macintosh. This is the lowly Apple II, (laughs) which doesn't have, you know, huge amounts of memory. So the only time the public really got exposed to a point-and-click graphical user interface and it being popularized is really a combination of the Macintosh and Windows 3.1. Right. And so here you have back in 1983, a kind of primitive version of that. I mean, it's not everything, you know, it's not like there's preemptive multitasking and all of these fancy things that would come to define a GUI operating system, but just the idea of moving graphical elements around on the screen using a joystick was just revolutionary. So that game was already complete. Unlike the other games, and we're going to go into a little bit of what did EA do, what did the people do. Unlike some of the other games, this one was not only complete before EA, it was actually already on sale before EA because he had Budgeco. So he had Pinball Construction Set ready to go through Budgeco. He was hesitant at first to join Electronic Arts because he had his own company. He was a big deal already. He didn't need the support. I mean, he was a brilliant programmer himself, and he had all his programming tools and development tools. He didn't need the technical support that EA could provide. He didn't really need the guidance of a producer to help bounce ideas off of and, and refine his games. And he didn't strictly need EA to sell them technically because he had Budgeco. I say technically because. Having a little mom and pop company and having something like what EA became later, which is a major multinational publisher, are two different things. But technically, he already had his own publisher, so he already had his own contacts there. You make it sound like he did release it under Budgeco for a while before EA picked it up. I do believe he did. So conceivably out there, there could be versions of the game with the EA logo and one with the Budgeco logo. Yeah, I'm not positive... I know Raster Blaster was under Budgeco. I'm not positive if Pinball Construction Set got out into the wild as a Budgeco game before EA. I do know that it was completed. Like, by the time he signed with EA, it was already a completed game. I'm not sure if it ever actually made it into the wild as a Budgeco game. Be interested to be something to find out. If you have an old copy of Pinball Constructor Set, see who published it. (laughs) Yeah, and and, and it may have just been EA. It really may have been, but uh, it was certainly completed while he still had Budgeco. So, you know, he didn't want to join at first, but Tripp went after him really hard and uh, may have, uh, reports are conflicted on this, but may have even given him some EA stock. Now, these artists, they signed them to royalty deals. They were not employees. We talked about that at length. And they were also not, generally speaking, stakeholders. What they got from EA was the development support and marketing and distribution clout. What they got in return for that is royalties. But Trip really felt he needed Bill Butch, so he may have even offered him EA stock to get him on board. At the end of the day, Bill Butch didn't really like running a company. He felt he needed to. He felt he'd gone as far as he could with California Pacific, and the next logical thing to do is strike out on your own and (laughs) found your own company. That didn't really appeal to him. 
So I don't think it was that hard a sell to get him to give up his own company. I think probably, and I don't know this for certain, I haven't talked to Budge. I mean, Budge has given interviews. I just haven't talked to him myself. I have to imagine that more of his fear was based around the fact that I'm a big deal already. And I don't mean that in an ego-driven way. I don't think Bill Budge is ego-driven at all. So I, I don't want to imply that. But I'm kind of a big deal already. What the heck is EA? I mean, why am I tying myself to this brand instead of being on my own or instead of going to a more established publisher? Trip Hawkins just just wore him down. I mean, made him an offer he couldn't refuse, and so he signed. He was the first person Trip Hawkins targeted. I believe Freefall Associates signed first, though, as I said, Trip hadn't targeted them specifically. They just kind of ended up. Uh, he gets a kind of sweetheart deal, and Pinball Construction Set is then released under Electronic Arts. And and again, it's simple, hot, deep. I mean, we do see this theme. Whether Trip had this theme in mind from the very beginning or whether Trip developed this theme after he saw his original lineup, there's no doubt that most of the games that they originally had were fitting into this category of simple, hot, deep. It's pinball, simple. I mean, everyone knows what pinball is, and it's a gooey interface, which is an intuitive interface. Uh, the hot part, maybe it works a little less well on this one than some of the others, but obviously after you create a pinball table, you can play the pinball table. Or you can go share the pinball table with your friends. And the actual playing of the pinball tables, I mean, pinball's a fast action game. So, you know, there's your hot. And then deep, it has for the time and for the platform, a nice robust physics engine. And it has a lot of different options on pieces to put in your table and then how you put them all together, where you put them, how they play off of each other. So there's your deep right there. The GUI interface makes it easy to do, but there's a lot to play around with. So there's simple hot deep once again. If there's one game that doesn't fit this simple hot deep mode or model or model, I would say it's the game Axis Assassin, which is also probably the least known or least remembered of the launch titles at Electronic Arts. Be very, very quiet. We're hunting Nazis. <laughs> well, not at all. Um, in this case, it's not that kind of axis. It's referring to sort of Cartesian plane axes, not <laughs> not Nazis. But I mean, that's that's the first thing you think of, right? I mean, the name and we're going to see this with another game as we go on as well. The names are a bit inscrutable on some of these games. Hardhat Mac is fine. I mean, it's a construction worker. It's a platform game. It takes place on a construction site. The main character's name's Hardhat Mac. That makes sense. Pinball construction set. I mean, it doesn't get simpler than that. <laughs> It's pinball. You construct it out of this set of things. Yeah. But Archon, light and dark. Uh, okay. Well, I can sort of see that with you got an Archon as the avatar of something. And sure, you're taking sure. over the control of as the avatar of your will of, against light or darkness. I'm fighting my <laughs> evil side. Sure. I mean, you know, it's, it's there. You can construe it. You can, but we're starting to get a little bit more, huh? And uh, and then Axis Assassin. And my right. interpretation was completely wrong. But logical. Yes. Because, I mean, it's I mean, Axis can obviously mean many things. But, you know, when you put Assassin with it, it really makes it feel like. And keep in mind, this is the 80s compared to now. World War Two is still relatively closer to the modern thought process. Well, and, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark had just come out two years previously. 
Yeah. I mean, so you could have that. Nazis were in. <laughs> Nazis were in as far as being the bad guys. Yeah, boy, that's a quote that someone could take out of context. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I mean, that name's a bit of a stretch. And unfortunately, I don't really know anything much about the game either, about the genesis of the game either. Nobody really does. And I've talked to the producer of the game, <laughs> David Evans, who was the first EA producer. And he even said, wow, this is the first time I think someone has, his exact words are, you're getting really granular here. And he didn't mean that as an insult. He's just saying, and then he said, you know, I haven't been asked about Axis Assassin since probably 1983, you know, when he was doing press for the thing or whatever. So, uh, you know, it's probably the most obscure of the starting six. The creator was a, a guy named John Field. And David Evans, even though he's the producer of the game, cannot for the life of him remember how EA and John Field got together. He was another teenage programmer. Already you're seeing, just as a theme, as we go through these first four games, you have two games that were created by existing superstars within the industry. Bill Budge, one of the most well-known names. John Freeman and Westfall, the names probably not quite as well known, but people know what Automated Simulations was, and John Freeman was co-founder of Automated Simulations. So these are superstars, and then you have these two that are teenagers. You have the, the Hard Hat Mac crowd, the two teenagers that made that, and you have Axis Assassin, another teenager. He was from Menlo Park, California, which is in the Bay Area, so he was real nearby. You know, the Hard Hat Mac people were down in San Diego, which is... Even though it's the same state, anyone who knows California knows that's a world away, <laughs> all the way down in San Diego. So he's nearby. He's a crackerjack programmer, and he's already been doing some arcade shoot 'em up kind of games. He, he'd already done one. Dave Evans doesn't remember how everyone got together. He doesn't remember if EA went to him, if he went to EA. He said he does think that John Field had done a game previously, so that may be how he came to EA's attention. Uh, he does remember that he went to the Field house. <laughs> He's a teenager, so his parents, his mother, and signed him up there. As far as David Evans remembers, he had an idea for his next game, but that game hadn't actually, it wasn't done yet. So, you know, again, we've got a mix of that. Archon was not done when EA came a-calling. They had the idea, and they pitched the idea, like, on day one to Trip Hawkins, but no work had been done yet. Pinball construction set, completely finished. Hard Hat Mac, I'm not sure, uh, because, again, I just know so little about the, the two guys that did it. Uh, in this case, at least according to David Evans' memory, uh, you know, ideas kicking around again, kind of similar to the freefall situation, but not created yet. It's essentially a Tempest clone, the arcade game Tempest. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that one. The name sounds familiar, but I couldn't recall the gameplay off the top of my head. Yeah, so it's a vector-based game, and it's basically you're controlling a ship or whatever that's on a geometric shape, a uh, multifaceted geometric shape. And you can move around the different faces of said shape and stuff's coming out of the middle that you have to shoot. You have these planes, these facets of the geometric shape, these planes that you're maneuvering between. And so that, that's where the Axis and Axis Assassins comes from. Now, on the Apple II, you can't really recreate the way Tempest is. It's not a straight-up clone, but we'll, of course, put gameplay in the show notes. But it has 
the same idea of these facets of a shape. It's not a complete shape. It's kind of just along the, the bottom and parts of the sides of the screen instead of rotating all the way around. But uh, you have these different facets that you have to move between. Are you on the inside of the shape or the outside of this shape? Inside. Good question. Inside. Okay. So imagine you're inside a cube or hexagon or octagon and you're flying around that shooting whatever is coming out of these faces or the center spot. Right. Exactly. And so this one doesn't fully recreate it, but it's very much in the vein of Tempest. There are barriers. You kind of have to move between portions of the shape to dodge barriers and you're shooting stuff that comes after you it's the most purely action oriented there's a little bit of strategy involved i guess in making sure that your ship's in the right place at the right time but that that's that's a stretch it's an action game hard hat mac is nearly a pure action game but at least it has kind of more strategic objectives that you have to accomplish this is probably the most purely action oriented of the original lineup it's it's the one that strays furthest from the simple hot deep formulation but uh do remember this is the period of time when games like tempest which axis assassin was based on were a really big deal in the arcade and so electronic arts really wants to make sure that it's in that space so of the initial six games most of them are more cerebral more strategy with just some action elements. But then you have a couple. You have Hard Hat Mac and you have Axis Assassin that are really more based on pure action. And, and Axis Assassin probably more so than any other. Perhaps that's part of the reason why it's uh, not quite so well remembered today. Uh, I mean, there are other reasons which we'll get into. But the fact that it doesn't fit the EA mold, that it doesn't feel like an early electronic arts game, may be part of the reason it's overlooked. I don't know. So we talked about how EA engaged software artists, and we talked about this in this episode, and we talked about this in our EA Origin episode. They engaged software artists that were not actually employees of the company. They took completed games from them or worked with them to develop an idea into a full-fledged game, etc., etc., but these people were not employees of Electronic Arts. There was one exception. There's always an exception to every rule, right? Seemingly. There was one exception, and that exception was David Maynard, who was an EA employee and provided us with the fifth of our six launch titles, Worms. Or rather, Worms? Because it ends in a question mark. The question mark's part of the title, so it's not Worms, it's Worms. Now, is this the worms that we all think of and associate now? So very, very important distinction, especially as we form our show notes. (laughs) This is not the classic 1990s player versus player kind of artillery duel kind of worms game where like your scorched earth and other tank games, except replace it with worms and crazy weapons and everybody has fun. It's not that worms, which has no question mark. This is worms it is essentially as obscure as axis assassin if you're dividing up the six initial games you have the two that were massive hits at the time and are also well remembered today pinball construction set in archon you have the one that was not successful in its day but is considered hugely influential which is mule that we'll get to in a second then you have the game that was successful in its day 
but kind of quickly forgotten and not very influential, but because it was successful, it's at least somewhat remembered, and that's Hard Hat Mac. And then you have the games that were neither influential nor successful, and that's Axis Assassin and Worms. I just think because Worms is kind of so bizarre that it's like slightly more remembered than Axis Assassin, if only because it has a weird name and a weird concept and the pure novelty of it. Right. But I mean, they're, they're basically equally obscure. Now, David Maynard was an employee of Xerox Park, where, of course, they were inventing essentially the, the modern computer. GUIs, what you see is what you get, word processing, graphical programs, you know, graphic creation programs, drawing programs. I mean, it's just like, you know, everything you think of in modern computing, a lot of that was done at, at Park, the laser printer. The one thing that Xerox commercialized out of there, the laser printer. They did that too. And he was in this hotbed, uh, the Xerox Park facility in Palo Alto. And uh, they were big game players there. They were very, very big game players there. They weren't creating games there. That wasn't their mandate. But they were playing games like crazy. And so they were interested in games and people were making their own stuff on the side. And so uh, that's what David Boehner did while he was still at Park. He created a, a game that was essentially, you know, it was essentially like John Conway's Game of Life. And we, of course, talked about Game of Life in a couple of other episodes. This very classic idea that you set up a series of conditions for how a series of cells are going to reproduce, and then you turn it loose and see how they reproduce, what patterns emerge. So from a basic rule set comes random creation. I should say pseudo-random, because it looks random, but really it's all determined by that initial setup and that basic set of rules. Uh, so he liked that. So he decided to create a program that was kind of similar to that. I can't say I have a firm grasp really on worms as a game. So my description is going to be kind of vague and confusing and that's okay. There's really no good gameplay out there on YouTube and whatnot, unfortunately, that I've seen. There are videos, but it's just videos of the computer playing it itself. Not really anything that shows you how a human player would, would set up the inputs. All I know is you've got this kind of grid of points and you have these squiggly lines. You input some basic rules on how those squiggly lines will react when they come up against other squiggly lines. And these squiggly lines start taking control of more and more of the screen kind of in in triangular increments. And then the other players, there's four of them, the other player squiggly lines are doing the same thing and they're coming up against each other and changing direction and and this and that and eventually you know someone is gathered i guess more of the screen than anyone else and and then i guess they win so sort of like a deterministic non-interactive version of snake yeah a little bit a little bit and certainly it's like uh the game of life except that i think you periodically enter new commands whereas in in the game of life it's just you set everything up on the at the beginning and then it just goes so you know it's it's like a slightly you know i I know i'm not describing it well and i'm sorry but i mean it's a game that has a question mark in its own title so it seems kind of fitting that we're left with so many questions about worms. 
I like my snake analogy. Yeah. No, that kind of works. Uh, it kind of works, too. It really does. It's kind of if you took Game of Life and added a little bit of snake to it and a little bit of kicks to it, just in terms of taking control of the screen, nothing else. And I guess that's kind of Worms. He didn't name it that. I don't know if he had a name, but that that name was given to by Electronic Arts. So he created that game over about six months at Park. Then he got into a fight with Park about whether he really owned it or if Park owned it because he had made it there. But I mean, he wasn't making it for them. But you know how companies sometimes are like anything you do here is now ours. And so uh, he he fought them for another six months before he could do anything with it (laughs) and finally got them to agree that, yeah, it was his program, that they weren't going to interfere with him. Uh, And so then he went looking for a publisher. And it just so happened at the exact same time that you have Electronic Arts, where, as we discussed in our EA Origin episode, they're putting together their technical team, their in-house hardware and software experts that would be creating development stations and tools to aid the software artists in what they were doing. They were putting together this team, and the person putting that team together was Tim Mott, who was another veteran of Xerox Park. So Tim Mott knew David Maynard from the Park days and actually hired him to be one of these engineering support people, along with Steve Hayes, another Park person. It's kind of the entire technical side of early EA was built out of the Xerox Park apparatus. So he was hired in to do that. And oh, by the way, I have this game that I also want published. I actually don't know which order it is. I don't know if it was, oh, I've got this game. And then he was like, hey, I remember you from Xerox Park. I need a guy like you. Or if it was, hey, I remember you from Xerox Park. I need a guy like you. Oh, by the way, I have this game. I'm not sure which order it was. I haven't been able to talk to Dave Maynard or Tim Mott, and neither one of them has given very many interviews. So that's kind of the area of EA that I am personally most uncertain on. But I do know that he ended up being hired and they ended up publishing his game. And everyone was like, worms? Yeah. I mean, so it had these squiggly lines. And you can see in the gameplay videos we can put up, even if they won't do a very good job of explaining the gameplay, you'll be able to see the graphics. There are these little squiggly lines that you could say are worm-like. I mean, we're very abstract graphics. But, I mean, I can see why they would get worm out of that. I'm not sure... Why there's a question mark, though. I, I, I don't They're know. They're not sure if they get worms out of it. I guess. But yeah, it, it was not David Maynard's title for the record. That was EA that put that title on the game. So here again, you know, just going back to some of our patterns on these early EA games. Pinball Construction Set and Worms were completely done before they were even at Electronic Arts. Archon, Axis Assassin, kind of the ideas were kind of forming. Then EA was like, you know, come and do this with us. Hard Hat Mac may have been the same way. But especially in the early days, it was not a given that they were just looking for artists that they could shape. If there was a good enough completed concept that came their way, they would take that in and they would publish it. Our final game kind of exists in a space kind of halfway between those two states of completed and started after EA, after EA approached them. And, of course, that's the legendary game Mule by Danny Bunton Berry and Ozark Softscape. At the time, just historically speaking, Danny Bunton Berry was Dan Bunton. She later had sexual reassignment surgery and became Danny Bunton Berry. 
I may refer to her as Dan Button at times. I may refer to her as Danny Buttonberry. Uh, I will certainly refer to her as she throughout either way, but just so people are aware of what that dynamic is. So Dan Button, Danny Buttonberry, was at this point already uh, a veteran of the industry, but she was not a superstar. She was not Bill Budge. She was not even John Freeman, who maybe the name's not as well known, but is part of an established and successful brand. She was different from a lot of the early computer game programmers because she really put an emphasis on the idea of multiplayer gameplay that a lot of designers did not. Not to play psychoanalyst too much, but this came in large part out of her childhood. She didn't have the greatest home environment, the greatest family environment. But the happy memories that she did have tended to be when the family was gathered around the table playing board games like Monopoly. That is an experience that she really wanted to create, recreate on a computer platform. I mean, she was really ahead of her time. I mean, if she had come along, uh, because unfortunately she passed of uh, lung cancer in 1998. So she passed before we got to the kind of modern indie game movement. It would have probably been incredible to see what she could have done on a smartphone or on a Switch or on a a casual Steam game or or something like that, because I think it would have been remarkable. She was kind of in, in the wrong time period to make this work, but it's something that she was very, very interested in recreating. So she'd done a couple of games along those lines, uh, Wheeler Dealers and Cartels and Cutthroats, which were both kind of, Wheeler Dealers was an auction game for multiple players, and Cartels and Cutthroats was kind of a very, very abstract business simulation game. She'd also done a couple of other games, but for the purposes of our examination here, those are kind of the two key ones, because it, it was all about this idea of having more than two players, having a true multiplayer experience where everyone is competing and bidding with each other. Monopoly was a game that she really liked as a kid, and so I think that's what drove her in part in this direction of business-based games and auction-based games and, and all of this. But that kind of game just wasn't what people were looking for at the time. The idea of multiplayer computer games, uh, even one-on-one, was very new. The idea that you're going to get three or four or five people, uh, four people I think in these cases basically, all around the computer. That's tricky. That's difficult and oftentimes takes specialized hardware. Wheeler dealers came with special buttons that you had to use as inputs uh, as part of the game, which increased the price dramatically, which uh, guaranteed that it sold about 50 copies. And that's not an exaggeration. It was like about 50 copies. (laughs) The idea of having that kind of gameplay was just it, it just wasn't with the zeitgeist. So those games did not do particularly well. But You see, after that first one, after Wheeler Dealers, which was published by a small company, Danny Button got involved with Strategic Simulations, SSI, uh, which published her next three or four games. Trip Hawkins was still at Apple, but wanted to immerse himself in what was going on in the computer game space as a prelude to founding Electronic Arts. He became a board member of SSI. He was on the board before EA, and even after EA, they had a close relationship. 
so he was aware of these games and he loved the idea of cartels and cutthroats. It was a very, very abstracted game. He loved the idea of it and he was an MBA and he had studied uh, strategy and applied game theory, his custom major in college that was, as he puts it, basically preparing himself to do game design. So this, this kind of appealed very strongly to that side of Trip Hawkins. And so he was a Dan Bunton fan, even when the, the rest of the world hadn't really caught on to her genius. So he pursued Dan Bunton. This is different from the pursuit of Bill Budge. He didn't need Dan Bunton, Danny Bunton Barry, for his company to be successful. He's not going to offer stock. He's not going to offer the world. But he's intrigued enough about what her games represent that she, he wants her on the team. The first thing he tries to do is actually get cartels and cutthroats away from SSI. I mean, it's been published by SSI, but I mean, it never did much. Uh, I guess he thinks, you know, with his marketing plans, he can, he can promote it better. He tries to get SSI to give him the rights to cartels and cutthroats, and SSI is just not having it. It's their game. Get your own game. So he approaches Dan Bunton down in uh, Arkansas and says, okay, we can't do cartels and cutthroats. Why don't I fund a brand new Dan Bunton game that is kind of in the same vein as Cartels and Cutthroats? And Bunton thinks that over and is like, okay, that works. This is kind of the, the founding of Ozark Softscape, which becomes uh, Danny Buttonberry's company. The people involved are people that had largely worked with him before in this or that capacity on previous games, but they kind of brought them all together in a formal capacity and organized a company using the seed money that EA provided for them to go out and create the game. Danny Buttonberry was kind of the main designer, main programmer. Another guy named Jim Rushing was there who also did some programming. There was Alan Watson, who was the primary artist. He did a little programming too, but the main thing was the art. And then Bunton's brother, Bill Bunton, was there to kind of look after the business side. He wasn't a technology guy, but he was an MBA. And he had helped out on creating some of the rules and whatnot for cartels and cutthroats just because he knew the business world. So uh, these fellas, because at that time, uh, Danny Buttonberry was a fella too, for all intents and purposes, created Ozark Softscape down in uh, Arkansas. There's some uh, conflicting information on how some aspects of this game came together. A lot of people take credit for various parts. Certainly, Danny Bunton was the driving force behind the game. Trip Hawkins claims that he was involved in doing a lot of the economic modeling, building a lot of the economic model, which is believable. I mean, Danny Bunton Barry had uh, his brother, as I said, help out on Cartels and Cutthroats, so who was an MBA. Trip Hawkins is an MBA, and Trip Hawkins was very interested in what was going on, so I can believe that. Uh, that a lot of the uh, nuts and bolts of the economics came from him. Joey Barra was the producer. Joey Barra was different from the other early producers, and we talked about this a little in our EA episode. The first two producers, Dave Evans and Pat Marriott, were product managers at Apple. They really didn't care all that much about games. They weren't games people. It's just that they were people that worked with Trip at Apple that Trip knew could drive a product forward because they were competent product managers, and so they were, they were brought on board. Joey Barra also worked at Apple, though actually, ironically, Tripp and he did not cross paths at Apple. They didn't know each other. Completely different parts of the business. 
But Joey Barra was involved in evaluating software and securing software that Apple wanted to publish under its own label, and that included games. So he had exposure to computer games. He was also an avid gamer, chess, war games, pen and paper role-playing games, all of this stuff in his personal life. He was a massive fan of games. So he was unique amongst the initial set of producers that he was really into games, understood games, liked games, and could provide more input on games. And so he claims that he provided quite a bit of input into how Mule was shaped as well, which I'm, I'm sure he did. He claims he's the one that determined that there should be a board. You know, it's, it's going to be this kind of business simulation, supply and demand kind of thing. He says that he's the one that took it out of the abstract and said, let's put it on what's essentially a board, like a monopoly board. That may be true. Uh, Certainly Cartels and Cutthroats was much more abstract than Mule. So maybe Ibarra's influence went a long way to taking the abstraction and making it more concrete. I don't know. On the other hand, as I said, Danny Buntenberry really, really liked Monopoly as a child. So the fact that you ended up with a Monopoly-like setup, I mean, it's not a clone, (laughs) but a Monopoly-like setup could have also come from Danny Bunton, or they could have both had the idea and, you know, synergized off of each other. But the important thing is, is unlike Cartels and Cutthroats, they made this a far less abstract game. And then because this was a period when Star Wars was huge and science fiction was experiencing a resurgence, they decided to give it a kind of science fiction theme of taking place on another planet. So we've been kind of dancing around a little bit, but what is Mule? The name comes from the robotic workers, because it's not mule like the animal, though that is what it's referencing, but it's M.U.L.E. because it's an acronym for these robotic labor units that you're using to develop parcels of land. You have, like in Monopoly, you have these different parcels that have differing levels of resources and differing levels of quality to them. Each player secures land during a bidding phase. Uh, In order to keep the game balanced, everyone gets land every turn, but occasionally additional parcels come up for auction, and then the people who have the most resources can kind of bid on those. You get your land that have various resources you can harvest on them. You buy your mules, which can actually do the harvesting, and you have commodities that you extract from these parcels of land energy, food, uh, etc., that are then sold on the planet at varying levels of worth, depending on supply and demand and scarcity and all of the ways that a real economy works. Each phase of the game, there's, there's three phases of turn, the auction phase, the kind of planning phase, and then the selling and whatnot phase. Each of these takes place kind of in real time. There's a limited amount of time within each turn, so it's not a real time or in each phase. So it's not a real-time game, but aspects of it are time-limited. It's not a strategic game where you can just sit there for five hours deciding whether you want to make a turn or not. And, and everyone's doing their inputs at the same time, all four players. Uh, and there's always four players, even if you don't have four humans and AI takes over the others. These games were made for the Atari 800, as we've talked about before, these early electronic arts games. And there were actually four joystick inputs in an Atari 800 computer. So, I mean, you had to buy a lot of joysticks, which not everybody did, but you didn't need a special adapter to make the game work for four players. You just had to get enough controllers. And you're really doomed if you played it on the Apple II. <laughs> exactly. It's an interesting, cooperative, competitive 
game because the the point is to amass a lar- the largest fortune. But you can only amass a fortune as long as commodities are being bought and sold. The food, the energy, the cristite, which is sold off world and and uh, the materials that are used to buy more mules to go harvest more land. You have to cooperate a little bit because you're trading commodities with each other and, and on the open market. And you all kind of have to work to keep the economy stable because if the economy collapses, then you lose everything too. So you can't let the economy collapse. It's not like it's a zero, it's a zero sum game. Winner can't just take all because then the economy collapses and you can't get any more. But you still have to make sure you get more than everybody else. So it's competitive, but it's slightly cooperative. And of course, you can form alliances if there's a player that has a resource that you particularly need or a resource that the two of you can hold together to hold back together to drive up the market due to scarcity. You know, you can make deals with individual players to cooperate for a bit while your interests are aligned in manipulating the, the resource market. So there's, there's a lot of nuance to Mule and uh, to playing with the other players in, in Mule. Very complex game, I, uh, very interesting game. I haven't played it, but a lot of designers swear by it, game designers. This is a game that if you look at the next generation of game designers that came up in kind of the mid-80s, a lot of them point to Mule as one of their absolute favorite games. Sid Meier, uh, for instance, absolutely sings the praises of Mule every chance he gets, and uh, he's not alone. Even though the game wasn't as successful as some of the other launch titles, it's probably just about the most influential of the launch titles. And certainly the ideas that Danny Buttonberry had for complex multiplayer games far outlived her and and has continued to influence game design even up to the present day. So very influential in that way. Where does that leave us with our EA games? Well, Pinball Construction Set was the biggest hit. Pinball Construction Set sold in excess of 300,000 copies. And it spawned a whole genre of construction games uh, in the mid-80s. It was was a short-lived thing. But for a brief period of time in the mid-80s, both EA and some of EA's competitors were creating all sorts of construction set-like games. Uh, Adventure construction set, war game construction set, Bard's Tale construction set, music construction set, just all of these kind of things. These kind of build-your-own-game games became very popular. So it was it was certainly the biggest hit, and it was also an influential game. Uh, Archon was the second biggest hit. Archon sold north of 100,000 units. It was also the only one of the original six launch titles that spawned a sequel. Archon 2 Adept, a uh, very different game than the first one. Basically, they did a sequel because Trip Hawkins wanted a sequel because it was so successful. But... Freefall, John Freeman and Ann Westfall didn't really want to do a, a sequel where they just added a few new units with new abilities or whatever and called it a day. Even though Adept was technically a sequel, it was called Archon 2, it was essentially a completely different game because this is kind of where commercial reality and designer wants kind of collide. But just showing how much of an artist-focused company EA was in the early days, even though EA wanted a sequel a marketing decision based on success of the first game when the original designer said, okay, we'll do a sequel where we're going to do something completely different. They let them do it. They didn't say, no, you have to do it by just making an incremental improvement with a few more units. So there's that. 
Hard Hat Mac was the other game that was a hit. It was a smaller hit than the other two. It sold somewhere between 50 and 100,000 copies, which at that time was very good. Yeah, keep in mind with all of these games, we're talking about the early PC era where the sales numbers are not super high like they were on consoles. Mm-hmm, exactly. 50,000 was considered success. 100,000 was considered a massive hit. More than 500,000 was considered a mega, mega blockbuster. So you kind of had, you had your 300,000 unit seller and pinball construction set, mega, mega blockbuster. Your Archon, 100,000 plus, substantial hit. Hard Hat Mac, 50 to 100,000, success. That's kind of how those play out. Of the games that didn't do so well, uh, I mean, Axis Assassin and Worms, as I've said before, just kind of forgotten. I mean, they were nothing. Mule, as we said, it only sold twenty to 30,000 copies, which even at the time was not a great showing. Uh, it was widely pirated, but, I mean, everything was widely pirated, so I'm not sure how that speaks to, to anything other than to say that more than twenty to 30,000 people played it <laughs> because it was heavily pirated. But it ended up being very influential, and the people who did play it became fanatically devoted to it, and so it had a cult following, and it's been elevated far beyond success. You know, at the time, in 1983, if you asked people to name Electronic Arts six games, just average man on the street, they'd probably be able to tell you Pinball Construction said Archon and Hard Hat Mac, and then they'd start reaching. Nowadays, if somebody asks, it's Pinball Construction said Archon and Mule, and then they'll start reaching, because... Hard Hat Mac, you know, is, is not really well remembered. So that that's kind of the, the prism that you can see those first six games through. In terms of the designers, Bill Budge, uh, as I said, he still programs up to this day. He's at Google, but uh, he never really did a game again. After Pinball Construction Set, he tried to expand the concept by essentially creating a construction set construction set. It's like, what's better than a construction set to build pinball? A construction set that can build anything. And so he spent a few years kind of banging his head against the wall on this construction construction set idea, never really got anywhere with it. And and then that was basically it for him and games, um, though, like I said, he's still a very well-respected programmer and still programs today. Hard Hat Mac, like I said, uh, the, the teenagers that did that, not so important themselves, but then they brought Eric Hammond in and Eric Hammond brought Robin Antonick in. And these are the people that created some of the early EA sports games. So they had an influence a little bigger than their own personal game output would suggest, but they were never big game designers again. David Maynard, uh, he still codes today. Um, He's another one of these guys like Bill Budge that lasts forever in the coding, but, you know, he was not really even a games programmer when he did Worms. It was just kind of, hey, I made this thing. Could you guys publish it? But, you know, he spent many, many years with EA on the hardware side, on the technical side. Uh, then he went and followed Trip to 3DO and worked on 3DO as well, but not really as a game person. Uh, John Field did one other game with EA in 1984, kind of very primitive gladiatorial game, kind of one-on-one combat, but very, very primitive, not very successful. And then he just kind of vanishes into history. Uh, and then Danny Buttonberry. Out of all of the original six, uh, she's the one that had the longest and and biggest and most influential career. Uh, She's probably worth her own episode at some point in this whole crazy podcast thing. Uh, So I won't go into detail now, but suffice it to say, she remained a very big part of the industry until about 1992 or so. 
uh, then kind of faded away a little bit and was was just starting to come back in after her gender reassignment surgery and kind of all the fallout uh, with her family and, and friends and whatnot that, that she had after that when she got her lung cancer diagnosis. And 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 that was unfortunately it for her. That's in a nutshell. Those are those uh, first six games from EA. They really, other than pinball construction set, they didn't really set a tone of success for Electronic Arts. It really took, as we talked about in our EA episodes, first one-on-one basketball and then Sky Fox and the massive sales of those games and the rise of the Commodore 64 platform to make EA the massive success that we think of today. At the least, it provided a foundation for the company. It made them some important developer contacts, and it gave a sense of what kind of company EA was was going to be, at least in its early years, with, with this whole concept of simple, hot, deep. Sounds good. What will we talk about with our last episode of the year right before the holiday season? My time does fly, doesn't it? Well, I was thinking uh, that we would do something that we haven't done in a while. Uh, this week was something we hadn't really done before, and and this next one can be something we haven't done in a while, and that's let's take a group of games that are linked by technology and, and kind of work through that. In this case, I'm talking about vector graphics in the arcade. Throughout most of history, up until we had uh, HD systems, HD monitors that we have today, games were created just like a television image is created through raster scan. But there was a brief period of time in the late 70s and early 80s when uh, you couldn't get very good resolution on raster scan that a number of companies experimented with these glowy, crazy vector line drawing graphics instead. And created some very, uh, very interesting and quite unique graphical conceits and some very interesting and very groundbreaking gameplay to go along with it. But then due to various technical limitations uh, on the part of Vector, as well as the continued evolution of Raster, uh, ended up just being a very brief period and something that that didn't last. So kind of look at the, the rise and fall of vector graphics-based games in the arcade in the late 1970s, early 1980s. A light show to go with the lights of the holiday season. <laughs> there you go. That's what I can kept around for, coming up with these interesting parallels. <laughs> right. Oh, well. We'll get into that and more next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book will be released through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash song forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. <laughs>